1: is intercepted. I'm Murtaza Hussein, a reporter with The Intercept. In 2014, the Islamic State also known as ISIS or Daesh, was advancing in Iraq. In another major story tonight, Baghdad is close to being encircled by the
0: Islamic terrorist group known as ISIS. Much of Anbar province to the west and part of Diyala province to the northeast have fallen. As ISIS seizes Tal Afar, another major city in Iraq, The terrorists possibly gaining control over its army base, which would mean more armored vehicles, weapons and ammunition
1: up for grabs. Some of the weaponry provided by the U.S. As the Islamic State continued to take land in Iraq, the country was in shambles. Just three years earlier, the U.S. had pulled its last soldier from the country after the eight-year war and occupation that also destabilized the country. As Iraq was falling to ISIS, the Prime Minister of Iraq, Nouri al-Maliki, and his military were facing allegations of widespread corruption. Protesters were demanding he resign. In 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq, deposed Saddam Hussein, and began an 8-year occupation of the country. By 2005, the U.S. had become fully invested in policies that exacerbated sectarianism in Iraq. The U.S. government also began arming, training, and funding Shia death squads that terrorized Sunni communities. In response, as conditions for Sunnis worsened, groups began to emerge that grew more and more extreme, including Al-Qaeda in Iraq and its successor, ISIS. The failed policies of the U.S. and years of instability led to the rise of ISIS, and in response, the Iraqi government had to act quickly. Dr. Haider al-Abadi was elected Prime Minister of Iraq after Maliki stepped down. With assistance from the US and other major powers, he was able to stamp out the threat of ISIS as it made its way throughout the country. During Saddam Hussein's rule, Abadi joined the opposition against him. He spent 26 years in the UK organizing against Saddam Hussein and his rule. After Hussein was deposed during the U.S.'s 2003 invasion, Abadi returned to Iraq and later became Minister of Communication for the newly formed Iraqi government. I recently spoke with Abadi, who has a new book out titled Impossible Victory, How Iraq Defeated ISIS. I wanted to speak with Abadi about his thoughts on the aftermath of the war and his role in Iraq. We spoke about the fight against ISIS, the legacy of the U.S.'s occupation of Iraq, and the rising influence of Iran. I began our conversation by asking him what he found when he first arrived in Iraq in 2003, after 26 years away.
2: Um, uh, yes, 27, 26 years is almost more than a generation. And I expect to find huge changes in the country. Yes, I did find changes. Uh, but to be honest with you, the changes are very disorganized. Uh, culturally, the country as if it's been taken back. I was surprised to see the country hasn't developed as we expected over 26 years. Housing is not enough. There is not enough schools for the country, for the population, not enough uh, hospitals. I was surprised to find the same hospitals I left the country are there without any new hospitals built. Um, I was surprised to see the country went backward over 26, 27 years.
1: Before becoming prime minister in 2014, In your book, you say that your predecessor, Nouri al-Maliki, established the conditions for ISIS to make a comeback. Can you expand on what Maliki did to lead to those conditions?
2: Yes, I think extremism was there. It is in the region, not in Iraq. Don't forget, that extremism came from other countries. And these would-be suicide bombers came from all over the Arab world and from almost over 100 countries, even some Western countries. And uh, they were large numbers, and uh, they have uh, managed uh, to bring themselves in Syria, and they did occupy large swathes of territory in Syria, and then they were able to cross into Iraq. Now, the fault lines are this. Under these circumstances, you should win your population over. You shouldn't push your population towards the other side. What happened because of political enmity and political differences in the country, it was one against the other. So with the government, and the government have certain opposition, whether they are Shia or Sunni or Kurds, and these others, they were gathering against the government. By doing this, they were attracting people from all sorts of life, including terrorists, including those who resort to, to violence. And in that critical moment, The whole thing snapped. Terrorists, because they were able in Syria, they were being ready to cross the border to Iraq. And the atmosphere in Iraq was created that they will welcome these fighters in the country. And that was a major mistake by the government. And uh, they could have done much better by winning over their own people, the Iraqi people, so that terrorists would not thrive into our own communities. And that's what happened. The whole state collapsed, security forces collapsed, whole divisions of the army collapsed, and the terrorists took over. And of course, some people in these areas welcome these terrorists under the assumption that these terrorists will will save them from, I put it in brackets, the oppressive means of the Baghdad government. Although it wasn't oppressive as such, but people were not happy. So they thought this Daesh, And these terrorists will help them to take back what they think it is their own.
1: So can you tell me a bit about what the atmosphere was like in Iraq at the time the city of Mosul fell to ISIS? This was obviously a major turning point in the emergence of the group and the collapse of the Iraqi state. And they seemed to be generating a lot of fear and panic at that time. You were prime minister. What did you witness in the country when this was happening?
2: Well, A, the morals of the army and our other security forces were so uh, they don't have the motive to fight. The whole thing collapsed. Uh, they saw that uh, they were supposed to defend their population, but the population turned against them. Uh, one of the reasons is the high level of corruption within security forces, where they were uh, using uh, different means to extract uh, gains from the population. And that was one of the major reasons security forces felt they are not welcome by their own constituents, by their own population, and whole divisions of the army collapsed, including the federal police, local police. And uh, morally, I found many commanders, they tell me, sir, we cannot present ourselves in front of the people. At checkpoints, we we try to hide our our ranks Uh, because people will curse us when they see us with ranks, and they they will accuse us of humiliating the country and letting them down. So Mm -hmm. it it was a very, very difficult situation. A, you have to bring the morals of the fighting force back. B, you have to make the the, the public aware that they should support the fighting force, otherwise we don't have any means of winning this war against the terrorists, and see to be fair with the population. The population must believe in you as a government, you are serving them. You are not a Shia government to protect the Shia only against the Sunni. You are not an Arab government to protect the Arabs against the Kurds. And you are not a Muslim government to protect Muslims against others or to oppress others. You are a government for the benefit of the people, regardless of what your religion is, what your sect is, every official, he must have a sex, a th- authenticity. He, he must have a, a religion. But regardless of that, his position will require him to serve other people. That is my main task: was to bring back a good governance, a governor, a government that will treat people the same. People will feel safe with this government. This government will play. That's that's what I have done, to be honest with you. That's where what I have started to do to bring the proper commanders, the right commanders for the right job to To hit very hard on on uh, corruption inside the security forces, especially, and to give motivation for these fighters, and the main motivation is for them to serve the people, so that they will see the, the reward. I was telling the people, the commanders, well, look, all the fighters, well, look, uh, you have to serve the people. They say, sir, They are against us. They throw stones on us. They hate us. I tell them, well, look, because they believe you are not working for them. Just change. How you behave with them, try to serve them. Let them believe and be truthful that you are protecting them. I mean, what is the use of liberating the land while you are killing the people? You are against the, your own people. It's no use for the land without the people. So this is, is, taking, this is taking about a year, year and a half of, of, uh, of a huge work. It's not only speech, of course. You have to work on the ground. You have to choose commanders. You have to observe what they are doing and try to rectify it, try to punish the the bad apple and trying to progress the good apple in that sense. And, And this was the major, in actual fact, the major test of the ability of the government to succeed. And touch wood, yes, within three years or less, we succeeded in turning the whole tide for us instead of against us. People started to believe us. They started to say, well, this government, this army, The security forces, are really serving us. We should side with them against the terrorists. And when we have done that, the terrorists lost because they are not welcomed by people anymore.
1: So I wanted to pivot a bit and ask about your perception of America's role in Iraq over the years. Obviously, the U.S. had sanctions on Iraq for a long time during Saddam Hussein's government. They invaded in 2003 and deposed Saddam. But in the context of this, they also carried out many crimes against Iraqis, during that period. Looking back, how do we make sense of the uh, legacy of American involvement in Iraq?
2: Well, it was very difficult to describe, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, A, there were sanctions on Iraq because of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was removed and Iraq was occupied by the US, but not all sanctions were lifted. That's, uh, I mean, to me, is old. Well, the regime has gone and the country is under your control. Why don't you lift all the sanctions? And number two, this proves that superpowers, although they are super in terms of the power, but they are not super in terms of uh, conscious, in terms of being just, in terms of using this power to serve others, not to oppress them. This is very unfortunate. Yes, it is a superpower, but it uses superpower to kill innocent Iraqis. They're not not being careful not to kill Iraqis. I mean, for them protecting one U.S. soldier, uh, they can't justify by killing many Iraqis to protect that U.S. soldier, which really shouldn't be the case. I mean, the reason is because they're not answerable to the Iraqi people. If a U.S. soldier committed a mistake or a crime, it's not answerable in the country, in the judiciary of the country. Are not even their politician is not answerable to the Iraqi people. They are answerable to the American people. And I think this is a major to me, to me, a major blunder by the US administration in putting Iraq under occupation. They shouldn't have done that. Uh, I think they thought uh, maybe they thought they have the ideal army who are like angels, and they will rebuild the country, but they didn't do that. I mean, their army was far from being disciplined. I myself was a minister and a member of parliament. I myself was subjected to many uh, mistreatment and uh, threats by the US uh, military in the country. And many people did do that. Yes, in the first few months, people welcomed them. I know one old lady in my neighborhood was very much, uh, because uh, in my neighborhood in Karada, US army was like uh, having a picnic. Uh, they were relaxed. Uh, people welcomed them, and they will give them even food. Uh, but later on, it, it became uh, the relationship very so uh, because they misused the good treatment of the people by not discriminating between their enemy and their friend. They were hitting back at every Iraqi. Every Iraqi has been seen, seen like an enemy. And uh, I don't know whether the U.S. has... One system or two. Uh, But to me, uh, there was uh, this official US military controlling Iraq. And there may be a different religious or something which uh, is governed by religious view that Iraq must be destroyed. Because according to this uh, narration of Torah, the Bible, uh, that Babel is a gate to to saving uh, Israel, uh, uh, I, I will I will say not present day Israel, but Israelis, uh, the hyster- historical Israelis and that Israelite in that sense. And maybe there is this uh, uh, religious elite within the administration, within the whole apparatus of the US who misguided the US operation in Iraq to this end by damaging and bringing down the country and disintegrating it in their belief that uh, uh, this will serve their aim to bring the savior back, the the messiah back, to prepare the ground for the messiah. And I think you find a lot of uh, thinking behind this. Um, I'm not sure what was in the mind of the US administration then, uh, because so far there is no unified story of why the US went to invasion, why they behaved so badly, why they couldn't rebuild the country, why they they couldn't pacify terrorists, why they couldn't control the borders, why they couldn't protect their civilians, why they didn't protect the economy of the country, and they blundered the whole wealth of the country by misspending it
1: after the U.S. invaded, they should not have occupied the country. What do you think would have been a better path after the, invasion, the deposition of Saddam Hussein happened to ensure a more stable Iraq? Number one, they should
2: have lifted the sanctions immediately against the country because that has crippled the country. Number two, they should bring their own expertise on how to rebuild the country, how to help Iraqis. And instead of uh, occupying the country, and putting the country under their own mandate by occupation, as they've done, went to the UN Security Council, and they have done exactly that. That was against the will of the Iraqis, against the will of the many politicians in the country. They should have it, have handed over the, the responsibility for interim government, and that government should be able to run the country. It should run by Iraqis. Uh, but they have pushed very hard, for their own agenda, whatever the agenda was, but definitely the agenda was didn't didn't produce good results. Uh, it has led to many killing, to disintegrating the country, and it's opened all wounds, previous wounds in the country. Don't forget, this country was governed by dictator, by single party, very oppressive, and you have removed that lid without proper Iraqi authority. And I think US decision-makers, although they have planned very well for the occupation in Iraq, they have achieved it within probably three weeks, and they pacified the country. But it wasn't well planned how to recover the country, how to rebuild the country, how to serve the people of the country, how to bring Iraq back from its awful past. It was not well thought, or if we talk conspiracy theory, it was well thought to bring the country down. There may be different people, some people working in that in that sense, other people working in the other
1: direction. You know, one of the most notorious incidents of the U.S. occupation was a massacre of Iraqi civilians in Nasur Square in Baghdad in 2007. Uh, Iraq sued Blackwater, the mercenary firm responsible for that uh, massacre at the time. Can you tell us a bit about that lawsuit and also your thoughts about the later Uh, dismissal and pardoning of the charges against the men responsible by the Trump administration?
2: Yeah, that was really, to me, it has, I mean, made me very angry. Uh, But uh, Iraqi lives, they do matter. It matters. Yes, I understand soldier in a war has to protect himself. He may get killed and he can kill others because they are at war. And you cannot try soldiers in that regard. But you can try soldiers when they are killing innocent people outside the war. But it was brought to the attention in the media because there were witnesses. Many people saw it. But I can assure you, there were many other incidents where innocent people were killed, but there were not enough witnesses. The media didn't witness it. And uh, of course, it was not covered.
1: So, you know, Iraq survived the U.S. invasion. It survived ISIS. But in doing so, a lot of political power and control over militias was actually delegated or obtained by a neighboring power, in this case, which was Iran. Uh, You know, a few years ago, The Intercept actually reported on a cache of secret documents from the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence that were about Iraq, and they showed a high level of infiltration of Iraqi institutions by pro-Iranian groups. Can you speak a little bit about the impact of Iranian influence on Iraq and Iraq's political independence? Well, to me, to be, I'm not surprised, because don't
2: forget, I think if you go back to uh, for, for the history between the Persian Empire and uh, the, the Ottoman Empire, who was controlling Baghdad, and even before that. Uh, so there was a lot of hostility then and a lot of competition, and Iraq was always in the middle in that. So I'm not surprised that the Iranians will see Iraq in a sense of opportunity and in another sense is a threat because don't forget, there was an Iran-Iraq war for eight years, that war was waged by Saddam Hussein against Iran. And uh, it has crippled the country, caused a lot of damage, a lot of casualties, a lot of innocent people. So the Iranians are not going to forget us. This is an Arab country, whose was neighboring country. So they will see it as a threat if that country is drifted towards the other side against Iran. At the same time, Iraq has in the past have a good relationship with its neighbor in Iran. So it can become a friend, not an enemy. So there is now an opportunity for Iran to use Iraq as a friend. Don't forget, Julie, the fight against terrorists, the Iranians, uh, I mean, although the Iranians may not like uh, me saying this, uh, but I believe in this. Uh, the Iranians didn't really only fight to help Iraqis. They fought Daesh because it's a threat against Iran. Don't forget, Daesh and Diyala reach almost the border of the Iran. So imagine if Daesh is on the border of Iran from Iraq. is a huge uh, national security threat to Iran. So it is in the best interest of Iran to help Iraq in fighting Daesh. This will stop the threat to them. And that's why I believe them. They were very sincere in helping Iraq to fight Daesh, because it's it's a self-interest of national security of Iran. I believe this. So I agree with you. There will always be uh, an Iranian interest in Iraq, as there is the Turkish interest in Iraq. So to me, these countries will always use Iraq to their own own benefit. But what I'm saying, instead of uh, telling them not to, us Iraqis should work together to serve our own countries rather than serving the interests of other countries. Yes, we should live in peace with other countries, neighboring Iraq. Uh, we should have very good relationship with them. We should serve the interests of our common interests of our people together. Uh, but we should serve the interests of our country, not the interests of other countries. And
1: this will prevent others from using us. So as many of our listeners have probably seen, uh, Iraq is currently mired in a very serious political crisis between supporters of Muqtada al-Sadr, a famous Iraqi cleric, and a coalition of opposition parties, some of whom are quite close to Iran. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what's at stake in this crisis and what of your own experience has been uh, in the past few months? You see, we are
2: again in the, the thresholds of uh, a crisis. Um, uh, i I tell you something, uh, uh, during the years of Al-Qaeda, when there was uh, many massacres committed by Al-Qaeda, which took the country into civil war between Shia and Sunni then, uh, many countries in the world, written of Iraq, said Iraq will never come out of this healthy. But uh, I think uh, Iraqis defeated the bad uh, analysis, and they proved themselves and they risen up again. Then what happened later on with Daesh, which occupied large parts of, uh, of territory, of Iraqi territory, and they brought almost the country down, and uh, they thought Iraq was uh, under fire. Uh, is the end of Iraq, as they said at the time. But Iraqis came out of that even stronger. So I think Iraq, as I read, wrote in the book, Iraq will surprise you, but it needs a will. It doesn't happen by itself. It needs a will, it needs a vision, and it needs sacrifices to come out of this. This is, I think, internal issue now. This is not external threat. This is internal threat between two political parties within the same community, uh, I mean, shared community. Each one probably wants to control the country. and They think this is the time to do this. I know it's not possible for one group to control the whole country. They should, to be honest with you, work together to save the people. Now, this is the test, and this is the challenge. Will they go to the extra mile of infighting, and at the end of the day, they have to negotiate, they have to sit down, and they have to find another route, or will, or will they discover this now without going to infighting and move forward?
1: Dr. Abadi, the uh, last question I want to ask you. Uh, we're having this conversation. It's been one year since the U.S.'s departure from Afghanistan and a more general pullback uh, of U.S. forces and political interests from the Middle East. How do you see the region changing in light of a scaled back U.S. presence, uh, which also may now be accelerated by the signing again of the Iran nuclear deal? Well, if we talk about hands-off
2: policy of the U.S., I think it's a good thing. But uh, I think uh, they have done it wrongly. I think uh, you cannot go from extreme to extreme. You can you cannot go to bring down regime toward, bring down regime and establish new regimes and make changes by occupational force, and all of a sudden you shift to a different policy by hands off policy. I think this was a very sudden, swift, or turn, which have harmed the region and harmed even the U.S. But we are there, we are here, I I wish. The U.S. will stick to a policy which is read by others, understood by others, and they will understand it is, this is in their interest. And of course, we can, here in Iraq, we have to save our interests as well. Now, why should we, in this regard, accept like a presence of a U.S. in, or some U.S. forces, although to me, Uh, uh, they have spent their time, to be honest with you. They have spent their purpose because we crushed the terrorists. Uh, Yes, we need certain expertise in terms of intelligence, in terms of training, in terms of certain operations. But we don't need beyond that. Not like when Daesh was controlling large territory of Iraq. And now even Daesh in Syria is much weaker than before. Uh, There are other threats in the region which we have to consider as Iraqis. Uh, To me, is Afghanistan, there was a fear a year ago that uh, this would enable other tourists in the region to become bolder in their things. But there was, after a year, there was no proof for that. Uh, I mean, things didn't get out of control, although uh, I'm very sorry for the poor situation in Afghanistan, how they treat uh, women. And I'm very sorry to see that Afghanistan after what they have achieved over 20 years, it's going back as if it's wiping out the whole 20 years. And this shows right why then the U.S. went to, work to Afghanistan, only to punish Al-Qaeda for hitting Washington and New York. Is the only purpose why they stay 20 years? If they lost it in a minute, if they lost it in an instance, uh, I think to me, it's as if the lives of the people are meaningless. It doesn't count in the policy making. That is very unfortunate. I mean, what, what messages are we going to, to send to the new population, the new generation? Well, we don't care about human lives. We don't care about values. To me, this, this is completely wrong.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Al-Abadi, for for speaking with us today. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Will Stanton mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Murtaza Hossein.